Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. We are joined again today by James, better known as Checkmatey, one of the absolute data savages over at Glassnode. About three months ago, James came on and talked about a number of topics, including why the fallout of FTX marked the real final capitulation, smallholder accumulation, and a number of other topics. This time around, we're catching up on the long slogging middle period we find ourselves through and get into everything from ordinals to minor behavior to patterns in whale behavior that's shifting and even talk a little bit of S2F at the end. Bitcoin Builders is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated entirely to Bitcoin and Lightning. Applications for Wolf's next cohort are now available on wolfnyc.com. I highly encourage you to go check it out. It's Friday, July 21st. This is Bitcoin Builders. Let's go. All right, James, welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. How are you doing, sir? Good, I might. It's great to be back. Yeah, no, it's perfect, almost perfect. I think it's been about a quarter. We've had some fairly meaningful shifts in sentiment, if nothing else, I think, since we last talked. We've had the courts actually start to hand regulators in America, some L's. We've had BlackRock come in and start talking about ETFs and apply. And generally speaking, I think there's a a slightly different vibe going on. But what we're here, I think, to explore tonight in some ways is what the actual on-chain data is showing us or telling us that either does or doesn't affirm that. uh, And either way helps kind of ground us where we are. So what I thought might be valuable is kind of just a super quick reflection on where we were last time we chatted. I think some of the, the, the two big themes and one thing that had just been starting, so the two big themes that we talked about, one was where the sort of real transition capitulation bottom happened kind of post FTX. The second thing that we talked about was the sort of broad pattern of accumulation and smaller holders accumulating more relative to, to larger holders. And then the thing that was just starting when we last talked was ordinals. So I don't know where it makes sense to to dive in, but that's sort of the the frame set. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it has it, it's been a, a series of narratives, hasn't it? I mean, you've seen kind of the SEC come out on on Coinbase and Binance, and then within I think it was might have even been just a week, suddenly BlackRock is announcing the uh, the ETF. So it it shows that there's a lot of big puzzle pieces on the move, and uh, it is quite amazing to see how the narrative shifts. And then also to observe what's going on in terms of the actual, you know, what are people really following through with that behavior? From my view, if we kind of take it back and look at it in time of two, two quarterly chunks, you're right that that first quarter was really the recovery from the FTX event, which in many ways was a bit of a hyperextension, right? The bottom, if you look at a lot of the on-chain signals, the bottom really looked like from a sentiment and a supply and all these things. Back in June, when Three Arrows blew up, that was kind of the starting behavior, and FTX just took us on an extra excursion below that. But all of that had very much the same character. There actually wasn't a great deal of a shift. If anything, it just kind of was that final flush. And uh, I think last we spoke, we essentially recovered all of those those losses. And quite often when the market just kind of you know recovers a, a particular event, it's the market signaling that it's it's probably done. And that first recovery leg, probably up to even 30,000, was kind of that uh, almost reaction off the bottom. And since then, it's been a lot of sideways, volatile chop, right? But in a strange way, it's actually been very not volatile because even the sell-off that we saw to 25K, which I think was February through to about uh, June, 
that whole process was quite structured. If you actually look at it in the, in the price chart, it was a very, very structured downtrend. And then we almost had just a perfect one-up candle that took us back to 31K. And here we are just trading sideways. And I mean, the Bollinger Bands are extremely squeezed in. So it's really interesting because there's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of stuff happening. And whilst the market's reacting, it's not really like chaos volatility. It's kind of controlled volatility, which is a really, really interesting dynamic, but uh, certainly interesting just seeing how quickly the needle swings in both directions. Yeah. I mean, it's felt to me like, and this is, this is a really interesting thing to explore when narrative is on the move, but actual on-chain data isn't. There are certain phenomenon that are really pretty unique to Bitcoin, I think. One is the intense floor that long-term hodlers set. And to some extent, everything is dictated at least a little bit on the bottom by that sort of last, you know, the, the hodlers of last resort who just like, even a Sam-sized hole in the market is not going to shake them loose, right? And so you have, on the one hand, there's that going on, you know, sort of in, in this period. The interesting thing is that this sort of narrative making hasn't really been in the context of new people who would come in yet. It's mostly been around how people who are those hodlers of last resort, who are super enfranchised in this space, see the tides shifting before they've fully changed almost. You know, it's, it's sort of, this is like the very earliest narrative stages of what might be for whenever the bull run happens. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you do have that floor. And I've kind of seen this 2023 in, in two phases. And it's, it's kind of nice to split it up by price bands because I think it helps people understand it and just appreciate the magnitude. We've got a chart called the URPD, which basically it's like a bar chart. Um, and it shows you the price distribution, like a volume profile that you see in technical analysis. What are the price areas where supply was accumulated? And you can see there's a huge cluster between 15 and 24. That's kind of the FTX bottom. There's a huge amount of supply that was bought there. And most of that, if not all of it, I think, has now crossed over into what we call long-term holder territory. So these are people who are unlikely to spend on a statistical basis. That's the hodlers who just stepped in and said, sorry, Sam, you're not taking it lower. That's it. You've then got the second group of people who some of those are going to be people who are kind of that, that speculator. They've seen a bit of energy come back into the market. They're like, okay, there's something I can trade now. There's going to be hodlers who are just going to continue their DCA process. There's going to be people who sold the bottom and are now getting back in. It's not quite the same as people who come only for the bull and then just disappear. It's still people who have a level of that conviction. But certainly, I mean, 15K is a lot more attractive than 30. So it's in this kind of in-between nebulous phase where there's, there's just less gravity in both directions. And it's funny because when you look at it across multiple cycles, it's very similar to early 2016, which if you actually look at it was just a long, like was, I think it was about eight months of just sideways boredom where nothing happened. Price kind of was grinding upwards, but it was just sideways. 2019 was a more volatile version of that where it was mostly down, but you look at the actual accumulation behavior, it was quite significant. But we had March 2020, right? It took us back to 3,800. These kind of reaccumulation periods, there's two phases of a bear market. A lot of people don't get this. There's the down period, right, which 2022 was. And then there's the sideways boredom that just wears people out. And that's the thing that actually gets people to just puke out at the end. It's kind of a disbelief rally because it's still heading higher over the macro scale. But if you go back and look at the 2018 to 19 period, when did the bull market start? Did it start at March 2020? Or did it start back in November 2018 when we actually hit the cycle low? Because 
there was a whole year and a half where we came back and revisited that level. So it's like, where does the bull market start? Is it the low or is it the uptrend? It's hard to tell. Yeah, no, I think that that is one of the most interesting questions. And you see a little bit of the speculation now is sort of, you know, so we had Dan Tapiero on the main breakdown show a couple of weeks ago, and his thesis is firmly that FTX was the end of the bear market and that there is this sort of hangover period where things still get flushed out. But like, basically, as soon as we were on the other side of that, that marks the bottom. And so the interesting thing is that <laughs> the end of the bear market doesn't necessarily mean the beginning of the bull market. And that's yes. sort of the, the hinterland that we're in, right? Absolutely. Now, and this is the thing. This is why I find on-chain data so interesting, because at the end of the day, all on-chain data is, is the data points of our human decisions, right? We all make collective decisions, and we get to see them play out over and over again. We've got a couple of metrics that uh, I'm quite fond of. Uh, we, we put them into the, the profit and loss, realized profit and loss bucket. And what we're looking at here is of all the coins that are spent, are they locking in a profit, a loss, somewhere in between? What does this look like? And these are great because, I mean, what is the number one incentive for a human being to spend their Bitcoin? It's going to be, I'm in a lot of profit or I'm massively in a loss, right? So the bigger these two numbers are on either side, the higher the probability someone's going to want to spend it. Now, during bear markets, we see a very, very specific kind of behavior. When coins get back to break even, it's generally people who bought the local low are saying they're going to sell the rip. So it's very much a sell the rip type behavior. And you also see people who are like, if money comes back close to my cost basis, I'll take it. Just, just give me my money back. I just want to get out of this thing. So bear markets have a very um, typical behavior of sell the rip. And it's very hard for these profit and loss metrics to get above the break-even level of one. It forms resistance the whole way down. Now, when we move into a bull, and we, we really saw this in January and February, that flips. And suddenly, people are no longer selling the rip. They're buying the dip. They're starting to actually step in and see their cost basis as an opportunity rather than a point to just get out. We have seen this, this switch over where there is a behavioral shift. People are now buying the dip, not selling the rip. When large profits get taken, it puts in the local high rather than uh, create some kind of sell-side pressure. So you, you get these interesting behavioral shifts that play out in the data. And uh, we've definitely seen that switch. But as you said, in this kind of early phase of the, you know, if it is a bull market, it's, it's a slow sideways grind until like the full up. And uh, this period of time is quite interesting because it only really breaks when we get past the all-time high. And when we get past the all-time high, there is a very, very distinct shift in investor behavior. The smart money, the, the hodlers, that's when they start spending. For the most part, they just kind of slowly stack through this period, but it takes time. It's a slow sideways grind. The media is not really that excited about it. No one's telling their friends about, you know, oh, I made money on this Bitcoin thing because they've been trying to tell them for four years and no one's listening to them anymore. So it's kind of that period of the cycle where it's just flat, sideways, boring, with you know, often a general tilt to the upside. We need a, a name for this part of the cycle. I feel like this is an area where the language doesn't do it justice because it's so distinct and discreet. And I think anyone who's been through a cycle, there's an emotional taste to it that they get. It is distinctly different. There's a feeling of relief from where things were X months ago, but it is distinctly not that sort of like hype and excitement and uh, try to turn this into a question. Obviously, what this looks like in terms of on-chain behavior and trading behavior is very different than other parts of the cycle. And broadly speaking, it appears much tighter, less sort of, you know, fewer big moves, 
But what are the things that you watch in this type of period to kind of try to understand what's actually happening outside of just generally speaking, the nothing that we're in for for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of metrics that I use to try and describe this period. And, um, you know, we, we try to, I mean, how, how do you contextualize things? And th- there's a lot of, um, one of the tools we use is like duration. How long have we been in these periods? What's it look like in, in the past? And it's very much that Bitcoin, it actually has, and I think bull and bear doesn't do its service. There's kind of four phases of a Bitcoin cycle that we've seen thus far. There's like the euphoric bull, which is basically from breaking the previous all-time high to whenever we cap out. Once you break that and, th- and that cycle kind of ends, you just see a, an absolute collapse in network usage. Um, you see losses go through the roof. But at that point in time, that's kind of the bear market equivalent to where we are right now, which is that we don't know it's a bear. Things start to shift and change. And there's a lot of like grasping for that narrative to bring it back and a lot of hopium that's in there. But at some point in time, the bear finally sets in. Then you go through kind of the 2022 phase, which is just dire pain, right? And it's just down and it's it's miserable and it's tough. And bad news is indeed bad news. And then once that floor gets put in, you kind of enter this nebulous, you know, you get the initial recovery, but then it's sideways, it's slow, it's boring. We're looking for narratives. Things start to shift, but at the same time, like, you know, BlackRock's talking about ETF and we're basically the same prices where we were when all of this news happened. We, we haven't really gone anywhere, which is kind of interesting. So how do we kind of describe this period? Well, there's a lot of metrics we look at, like how much of the supply is in profit. And we're currently sitting, if memory serves, about 75%. So that means that 25% of the supply is still held in that 2021 to 22 period above 30,000. And when you look at how many trading days in all of Bitcoin's history have 25% been at a loss, it's exactly 50% of all trading days. So in other words, we're, we're smack in the middle. There is no gravity in either direction. A lot of those folks, I mean, they're trapped at higher prices and they will no doubt provide resistance on the way higher, but they've also held their coins long enough that, I mean, I've got coins at 50K. I don't think about them. I, you know, I don't pay them any, uh, any service. So there's kind of these people who've just kind of forgotten their cost bases. It's that long ago, they're like, ah, I don't particularly care anymore. But at the same time, it's going to take some time and effort to kind of get through this this midpoint of the cycle. And just history shows us this. It it takes a long time to get through these 50% levels, the amount of profit the market's in, the kind of network activity. It's up, but it's not exactly booming. There's obviously been a lot of stuff with ordinals and the like, but again, they're moving around 10,000 sats. You know, so it's like it, it's interesting and it's a use case, but it's not pulling coins and uh, it hasn't got the volume kind of supporting it. It's interesting, but it hasn't yet got that volume side, that monetary side to it. It's a really interesting, but across many, many metrics, we're like at the 50% level. And my read on that is that we spend a lot of time here. It's not a quick process. It takes time. It's a slow and gradual, gradual uh, event. And naturally, the halving kind of comes in here. And whether the halving has a true supply impact or not, it doesn't really matter because the narrative kicks in. And then the excitement kicks in. You can almost see how the snowball starts rolling. This is absolutely completely subjective and just sort of based on observation as opposed to you know real, real on-chain data. This middle period that's very comparable to other cycles that we've seen, do you have any sense of why, or, or is maybe a better way to ask it is, is there a commonality looking across the last, call it three cycles, in terms of why there was this long sort of middle period? Is there something psychological in terms of 
just it's sort of the natural pattern after, you know, uh, the, the way that people get fleshed out. Basically, I'm trying to understand, like, I could give you the reasons why it would take a while for us to stay in this period this time based on the actual events that have transpired off chain, you know, like in the real world over the last six months. It makes complete sense. You know, if, okay, just from a narrative perspective, we had the start of implosions, obviously, in the sort of the, the, you know, around Luna and then 3AC last year. And that was really capped off by FTX and Sam. Then you have this sort of period of two months of everyone holding their breath to see if more things were going to go under. And then when DCG didn't, you know, in kind of January, February, that was sort of like signal one that like people could start to breathe again, that mm-hmm. it, we were going to deal with more stuff, but it, but it wasn't necessarily going to rip everything down again. And then you, you know, fast forward a little bit, and obviously there's all sorts of, you know, regulatory antagonism stuff, but it's almost expected kind of, you know, that sort of, it's not necessarily priced in, but it's to be expected. And then you have the banking crisis, right? And, you know, tiny little narrative moment where I don't think it's directly related, but Bitcoin happened to be going up at the same time. I actually think it had more to do with Binance dumping BUSD and buying Bitcoin and signaling that to a market in a very public way. But it doesn't matter because all the mainstream media picked up Bitcoin going up while banks go down, right? So you have that moment. And then, you know, fast forward again and you have BlackRock. It makes sense then from a narrative perspective that we'd have to sit here for a while because to the extent that what's getting people excited is big patternicity things, salve against banking, major institutions actually returning. Those aren't things that are kind of like, you know, overnight events. And everyone understands that it's sort of their friends aren't coming in yet. But the interesting question is, those feel so specific. And yet, we're experiencing the same shit that we did, you know, four years ago, even though it was a totally different set of events, right? If it was a different narrative, I'm sure it would look very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I, I don't know, I guess like, you know, you spend so much time looking at almost like what one set of on-chain behaviors begets. And I guess that's, you know, how much do you think, hold aside the narrative, it's just there are patterns in how an asset rises and falls. The details may change, but sort of the, the big patterns are the same. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, and I've always been a proponent for, I think market psychology is a fascinating topic. And, uh, you know, if you read uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator or Trading in the Zone or any of these books that kind of explain how a trader's mind and the investor mind thinks, Bitcoin is a textbook on this behavior and it behaves very much like a, a commodity. And it goes through these periods where you've essentially got an overabundance of, and this is the thing, this is why I don't think the halving is really the driving factor in any of this stuff, because the overabundance of supply the supply that gets, in inverted commas, created during a bull market is the supply that got sucked out in the previous bear. It's the smart money and those hodlers who acquire those coins. And then when you see a 10x and you suddenly start seeing these extraordinary gains, you're like, this is life-changing money. I can change my life in this cycle. And also, it's just getting pretty overheated, right? Dog tokens are pumping everywhere. It's, eh, it's, I'll take some off the table. So that like creation of supply is actually just supply that the market discounted some time back because it's been pulled off, patiently taken away. So it is very much this kind of commodity-esque behavior where we get an overabundance of supply that creates the bear market. The bear market is the process of sucking those coins out. It's a slow grinding process. And then we just rinse, repeat. So in many ways, when we kind of think about what creates this in-between phase, there's the disbelief component. 
there's people who just simply have so much PTSD from the bear market that they will they will continue to distribute slowly as we go. There's people who are trapped. It's funny because we've got a couple of charts floating around that actually show like the time that a coin has been held and whether they realized a profit or a loss. And if you go back to the 2017 top, some guy held his coins for the full five years and then locked in a loss when FTX blew up. Like these poor guys hold their coins the whole time. They buy the top and then they sell the bottom five years later. It's brutal, but it happens. And this kind of like resistance on the way up, some people just don't believe it. Some people just believe that it's, you know, it has to go lower. I mean, spend five minutes on Twitter and you'll you'll see 50% of people talking about the end of the world and the, you know, the recession of all recessions is coming. And then, oh, but wait, no, it's six months in the future. And then suddenly narratives switch again. So there's a lot of components, but we see this play out in market cycles all the time. There's trading quotes all over the place that can describe this. And on-chain does just a really clever way, an interesting way. And for whatever reason, Bitcoin is just a truly organic thing. It just seems to elicit a really, really human response in an almost textbook fashion. I think coming at at, at observing this data with that uh, market psychology framework, it really helps because if you just envision what the average investor is doing, what are they feeling and experiencing? And then you kind of separate that and say, okay, well, what's the smart money doing? When FTX blows up, they're seeing, you know, Genesis didn't take us lower. They're seeing this kind of like, maybe the floor is starting to get put in. They see it differently to the speculator. The speculator says, oh, we're going to 12K. That's a big signal I've seen. When you start seeing reply guys saying 12K, 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 it's not going to 12K. It just doesn't work that way. Too many people get on that wrong side of the boat and often it's just positioning. It kind of signals that there's a something's out of kilter when everyone agrees. Okay, so we're in this the slow grind sideways period. Let's talk about a few different things that are sort of happening in and around it that might be interesting. One that I wanted to ask about is what we've observed or shifts in what we've observed around ordinals. That hype was just coming up when we talked last. It feels like it had its peak, but has sort of never fully gone away. But what have we observed in terms of block space, in terms of fees, all, all, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it would have been probably around February or March when uh, when ordinals and inscriptions really started to take off. And uh, it was, I mean, it was quite amazing watching the um, the explosion in fee pressure. And it's funny because I actually, uh, I, I did put an inscription on the chain and I uh, I fired it off literally like two hours before the BRC20 thing shot off. So that was at like six sats per byte and it sat there for like three months just waiting to get confirmed. That's finally actually come through. It was like a couple of days ago that, that finally uh, finally clicked in. So kind of interesting that this, this wave, and I don't, I mean, we've still got like 120 blocks waiting to be confirmed, which is much the same as what we've seen for the last, I would say, four months. So we've seen a very, very large backlog of transactions, but we haven't yet seen that. We've seen the fee pressure come down, but the blocks haven't yet cleared. Now, whether these things really have a long-standing, you know, I suspect that when some of the speculative mania comes back, I'm sure that we'll see people trading this stuff. Whether it gets the same kind of traction elsewhere is hard to tell because you've seen some of these, you know, some big NFT projects are actually coming across to ordinals. And seeing that permanence element, right? It's 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 the original most secure chain. Having a inscription system here is, or an NFT on on Bitcoin, it's quite appealing to some people. You then got the other side, which is that well, you're actually relying on an external piece of software. Bitcoin has no idea about these NFTs. It stored the data, but is, do you really own it? The ordinal side actually relies on external social consensus, 
which to be honest, I think it's actually a really interesting case study in helping Bitcoiners understand and appreciate social consensus because it really is just a numbering system. And it kind of forces that function of how does social consensus and machine consensus come together? Because at the end of the day, Bitcoin functions on a combination of both. There's the code that keeps running things, but then there's also the, uh, you know, we all agree to run a certain version of the software. And uh, that is what the soft fork activation all looks like. So I think that's an interesting forcing function. Certainly over the last probably month, we have started to see a resurgence in the monetary use case. Some of the metrics we use, I think probably the the best form to look at uh, what we call on-chain activity, addresses, transaction counts, volumes. We use a simple system called Momentum. Show me the 30-day moving average, compare it to the yearly. And it's a really simple thing, right? Are we seeing more activity today than the yearly baseline? If yes, it's probably a, a good sign. If no, probably a bad sign. And what we're seeing is that uh, transactions and active addresses um, and kind of that use case or um, user base, it's cooling off quite a bit. But what we are seeing is that volume is now starting to pick up. Transaction volume on chain has been the one lagged. And uh, when you see a lot of coins moving around with 10K sats, okay, it's interesting. It's a new use case. But at the end of the day, there's you know 19.4 million coins. I kind of want to be seeing that monetary use case moving. If you really want like a true uptrending market, that is something that you would expect. And it's only been the last couple of weeks that we've seen volume start to pick up. And that's really been in a lull since FTX blew up. But that I think is a positive sign. We're starting to see that uh, recovery of the monetary use case. Uh, people continue to pull coins out of exchanges, which it is a remarkable trend to see. We're still seeing coins get pulled out and put into you know the Coinbase custodies of the world. These are kind of institutional size chip sizes. So it's still happening. There is still this kind of gradual accumulation, albeit starting to soften. Certainly compared to what we've seen, there's been a couple of very, very big spikes of, uh, of buy side pressure that has been softening as we come up into this 30K region, which again, it's kind of that bit of disbelief, a bit of trading opportunity. There's profits on the table after 2022 where there was just nothing. And I think that's the thing with 2022. It was just down. Right, There wasn't a relief rally at any point in time. It just went down. If you look at 2018, it was you know perfect to the Fibonacci bounce level, 61.8, 50, 38. Like it had these bounces. We got nothing of the sort in 2022. So you, know, you get 100% rally in uh, the next year and someone's going to take money off the table. Absolutely. It makes sense. Another sort of category that I wanted to ask you about is miners and sort of what, what minor behavior has been in terms of either you know, selling or hodling again, over the sort of same period since we last chatted? Yeah, it's been a, uh, it's been a really interesting dynamic with miners. So um, uh, I think getting the, the fee pressure, I mean, that's one thing that ordinals have certainly done is it's, uh, it's paid the miners quite a bit more. Now, granted, it was over a short period of time. I mean, fees still haven't come down to one set per byte, but I think they're hovering around six or seven last I checked. And uh, you could see that during that period of time, they were holding on to about 30 to 40% of the fee component. So if you really look at that from a mining perspective, I mean, 2022 was brutal. And we saw, I mean, we literally saw bankruptcies of some of the biggest miners. And there's a lot of hash rate that's come online in 2022 and 23 that were kind of backlog orders. So the orders were placed in the bull market. They didn't arrive, get racked up, get actually powered on. I mean, that's a whole logistical challenge, just getting the miners, receiving them and plugging them in. And we've seen hash rate moon to all-time high. So hash rate is up. 
that means that difficulty is up and that means that uh, it's becoming increasingly expensive to mine Bitcoin. So it's kind of brutal because even though price is up 100%, the hash price is pushing closer and closer to all-time lows because it's just becoming harder and harder to mine, right? It is literally more difficult to find the next block and uh, that drives the price per hash or the revenue per hash down. So we saw them keep some of the fees. Their balance in aggregate has gone up, but marginally, right? We're not talking about suddenly they're just in a new world of intense profitability. They are still like on that line. And uh, we did a really, really interesting study. Uh, I think we call it the uh, estimating the cost of production. And we used a couple of different methods, but uh, we tried to look at how can we best estimate the middle of the road average price to mine Bitcoin. And uh, what we found, we, we developed a, a fairly simple model. And uh, if you look at how many days price is traded above or below that level, it's like 50-50, meaning that miners are half the time in profit, half the time in loss, which is kind of the perfect efficient market. It's literally half the time you're in the money, half the time you're not. Over the long term, you break even if you're a good operator. So, I mean, it kind of goes to show what a brutal industry it is that uh, even during a massive fee spike, you keep a 20, 30% tip and the rest you got to do, you just got to pay your bills. Is there any reason to think that, you know, what are the things that people always look for are explanations for small moves? You know, so part of the discussion or discourse around miners has been, oh, they're selling. So that's why, you know, whatever, like on any given Thursday, you know, a 2% move down and people are trying to explain it. But is there anything that would affirm or deny that? No, um, to my view, and for all effective calculations, I just assume that every coin that's mined and goes to miners is sold. We see very, very few periods in time where that rule is broken. And it is because mining is just such a brutal industry. And even when you get these kind of white swan events of a massive fee spike for them, the bills that they already owe, they've already racked up. So they're just paying off stuff they've already uh, already covered. So it's a nice to have, but it's not a sustained thing. But uh, yeah, mining is a brutal industry. It's serious capital operators need to be there to survive. And uh, you know, as we come in towards the halving, it's going to be very, very interesting. I'll be curious to see whether hash rate continues to push higher because without any kind of real insight into this, my instinct is that we're probably getting to the end of whatever the latest generation of miners is. I'm not convinced yet that there's kind of a, a case to be upgrading them yet. We've kind of seen all these machines get racked up and, and built. Unless we get a real price move from here, it's going to be hard, I think, to justify buying the next generation of miner. So as a result, do we actually start to get a bit of a stagnation of hash rate, which is fine. That's, that's kind of part of the process. But the mining economics are pretty savage right now. So I would be a little bit surprised if hash rate continues to climb in this kind of just vertical direction it's been all year. Yeah. I mean, you would also presume that there's less capital available to borrow against to go fund new, new mining devices. You know, like it, it's sort of, I mean, there's very little of that <laughs> at this stage, you know, after what we went through last year. And the beautiful part about that, I mean, that's all of this is actually a positive because what, what do we see? We see innovation, right? If I can't buy more miners, what do I get? I got to get my power price down. How do you power price down? You got to get real creative, right? Go and mine on a landfill. And you start seeing this kind of constraint breeding innovation. So whilst Bitcoin mining is a brutal industry, it's also some of the area we're seeing some just incredible innovation. And it's, it's real. I mean, it's, it's capitalism is its finest. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Another theme to ask you about, something that we talked about extensively last time, but shrimp accumulation, smallholder accumulation. How have those patterns changed or, or stayed the same since, since last we chatted? 
the small holders are actually continuing. So they're still elevated in terms of the amount of balance change. So what we basically look at is, you know, how you measure these things is always a, a question mark. We like to use what we call a net position change, which is basically over a 30-day period, how much is a particular cohort seeing their balance go up or down? And it's just a nice way to kind of assess the, the local behavior. Now, they are still well and truly in positive territory. And if you compare it historically, it's significantly elevated. So we are still seeing shrimp acquiring coins and building up their balance. It is still some of the largest we've seen in history. That said, it is certainly cooler than it was two or three months ago and, and much, much cooler than it was back at FTX time. Now, there's going to be a couple of factors there. One is obviously prices 2x higher than FTX. So the same dollar goes half as far, which, you know, net is a good thing. But overall, we're seeing that kind of softening out. And if you really think about it, I mean, we've got inflation still ticking higher. Cost of living still goes higher. Interest rates are elevated, so mortgages. All these things that you would expect. I mean, this is what the, the recession case is kind of built upon. These things are starting to get to the point where it's we're not really deep value anymore. 15K is, is kind of down there in that deep value zone. We're not there anymore. So there's kind of that case. And then you've got people who are getting a little bit squeezed from the sides. You know, there's been the excitement of the ETF, but you know, that's not a thing yet. That's that's a bit of speculation, right? I'm positive there'll be some bad news come out about that. And we'll see how the market responds. So they're still accumulating, but not to the same extent. And when we actually, I was talking to my colleagues just before this, and we're doing a study coming out this week on the whale side of the equation, which we're going to call the report whale watching, which we don't do very often because it's a very nuanced and complex topic. But the whales are actually surprisingly, like in the last couple of weeks, surprisingly active. And what do we classify as a whale? Uh, it's people who have more than 1,000 BTC. And the challenge with these guys, they've got so much wealth, right? Some of them are fun, some of them exchanges, some of them are just truly true whales that have a lot of money. They will move their wallets, they'll break coins down, like it's it's a really challenging thing to follow them. But if you look at the current behavior, there is a huge uptick in whale inflows, particularly to Binance. So whales overall are kind of starting to move money around in larger sizes, and whilst I'm not usually someone who's like, oh yeah, whales drive the market. In fact, most of the time I kind of ignore them. There's some interesting trends starting to develop. So certainly over the course of the last couple of weeks, whales have seen their balances decline by quite a bit. They're dominating the flows into exchanges. Binance is kind of the primary venue where these coins are flowing to. And the shrimp are no longer quite offsetting that same magnitude. So previously the shrimp crabs and these smaller entities we're well and truly accumulating more than whales were distributing. That balance is now starting to flip the other direction where whales are actually releasing more coins into the supply by our estimates. And uh, yeah, it's getting into that kind of period where it's, it's just more uncertain, right? There's more kind of question marks around uh, where supply is flowing to at the moment. This is obviously very difficult to tell, but you must spend some time when you see the sort of patterns with whale movements. The natural next question is, which of these whales are moving and why? Is it Binance itself selling? Is it, you know, how much is it? Whatever, right? Like whatever the explanations might be. Is there anything to signal that other than just, you know, sort of your own gut instincts about what sort of might be causing that whale activity? Yeah, it's a very good question. And the answer is I don't really have an answer yet. And the challenge is when we look at things in an aggregate sense, there's kind of two layers you can go down. You could go down the point of actually what you'd call forensics find the whale, right? Who is this actual specific whale? The other one is just show me the aggregate movement of their funds. And uh, generally speaking, the aggregate will get you 99% of the answers. Um, and it's kind of that 1%. If it's really important, you can go down to that level. 
for shrimp, obviously the value of knowing which shrimp is completely irrelevant, right? <laughs> when yeah. you start moving into the, the whale, the, the, the cohort of these people is much, much smaller. So still early work and we're still kind of forming up what this will look like in terms of the report, but uh, certainly some interesting insights. Just It's just the magnitude. And I'm a big fan in my background's engineering. Absolute values don't matter as much as rates of change. And what we're mm-hmm. seeing is some strange rates of change. So it's just kind of necessitates an extra look. But um, the other thing that's quite interesting, however, is whilst we can look at coins in terms of you know whales and shrimp, which I guess you could say is a cohort of wallet size, you can also look at it in terms of coin age. And what we are not seeing is an uptick in old coins being spent. So old coins aren't becoming young. So in that regard, this whale supply is supply that's moved recently. So it's kind of stuff that's already been on the move. It just happens to be on the move in a greater extent right now. Hard to tell whether it's kind of uncertainty, hard to tell whether it's, you know, it could also be margining up. There's a lot of dynamics to this whole thing. We've seen options markets become increasingly popular. They are now dominating over futures markets, which is a very interesting development. And, you know, whether they're using those to kind of speculate, is it's hard to tell. Let's actually shift over to that because that's an interesting question. Do you have a sense of what might be driving that? My instinct is, and there's two data points I'm using for this. Um, so options open interest is down much larger than futures. The other thing that's kind of interesting has been the massive outflow of USDC. So when I look at that in, in kind of like a you know macro context, most investors who would be holding you or prefer USDC, they're going to be US-based institutions, right? We've kind of seen this has been the, the general trend. Now, those same US-based institutions have access to the 5% treasury market, right? So yep. you're getting zero on your USDC, you're getting 5% on T-bills. I mean, the choice is pretty simple. So Tether, on the other hand, is seeing an uptick. It's not quite offsetting. We're still seeing a net outflow of stablecoins in aggregate, quite a steady outflow. But that's telling me that the dollarizing world in the developing world is preferring Tether. That's where that capital is staying. And USDC is preferring to get out and go to T-bills, which is, you know, why give Circle the money when we can get it? And then I also look at the liquidity being sucked out of you know out, out of the market. And whilst there's measures that say liquidity is ticking higher, it kind of depends who you are, right? Some people are going to see that positive liquidity. Other people are going to see their balance sheet get stressed. And options is it's a way to get exposure to an asset without investing the whole amount. You don't have to buy a $30,000 Bitcoin. You can spend $1,000 a month and get a premium to get exposure to Bitcoin for a period of time. So in a way, it's, it's, it's kind of a method that institutions and traders can get exposure to the asset without putting the whole amount up front. So I think there's probably an element of all of that. It's just money is a bit tighter than it was on a trader level, maybe not in an aggregate level, but on an individual trader level. And I think that there's a way to get exposure to this asset class and hedge risk. But you know, a rally is risk, right? You want upside exposure, but you don't want to put the full amount down. Um, you can essentially use call options, which is where a lot of this is going. You can also hedge your risk with put options. So I think that's been a bit of a, a shift. I think it's a positive one because options are a um, they're a more nuanced instrument that allows a lot more risk management because you can hedge in both directions. You can put in far more complex positions. It's not kind of the, yeah, levered long perpetual futures funding rate to 100% a year. It's a lot more controlled. It feels like a more healthy leverage. And the thing with uh, with options is that if you're buying the options, you've got limited risk, right? Because you put up the premium, that's it. If you don't crash your car, you don't have to cash any premium. You're not asking for a refund. So it's got that kind of more mature level to it, which I think is important. Super interesting. Sort of related, although a little bit different. 
we're sort of presuming that we're in this middle period that patternistically is going to take some amount of time. What do you see, having observed the way that different events have been or haven't been catalysts for moves over the past, you know, six to 12 months, what do you see as things that could actually really shake the market in, in one direction or another in this period before, again, before we kind of have really entered the next phase of a, of a bull market? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about capital movement. So there's a few things. I've kind of been of the view for some time that I think the next wave of capital is not going to be retail. People are often looking for, oh, when, when does retail come back, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, they kind of come back when it's probably the wrong time to be getting in. That's usually how this works out. Something that I've been keeping an eye on and just kind of pondering and thinking about, if we look at the the macro environment, we're in this, I mean, this long-term debt cycle problem, right? This debt spiral that uh, is going to play out, but it's one of those classic things that you can see it, but it's a slow motion train wreck. But there's going to come a point in time where kind of the tax the rich phase becomes quite popular. And I think that call it capital flight, we're actually seeing it a bit here in Australia, which is quite interesting. Many of our banks are now blocking deposits to Bitcoin and crypto exchanges. So that's starting to come into the mix. And when I, when I look at this, you know, you've got your Operation Chokepoint 2.0 on the, in the US. You've got signs of that happening here in Australia. It looks like they're closing the doors, right? And they're getting ready to set this thing on fire. That's my kind of big picture read. And I suspect that there's going to be a lot of high net worth individuals who are just going to see these. There's like a, a penny drop moment for them. And they see these events happening in the world. And I think that kind of Maybe I do need to just get, you know, five figures, six figures, seven figures out of this system. And, you know, it's, 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 we're seeing BlackRock come out. I mean, say what you will about Larry Fink and, and BlackRock. He's talking about it as digital gold. And that's going to, even though, you know, he can say whatever he wants, but the guy who listens to him is suddenly seeing their career risk of owning Bitcoin go down a lot more. And I think those kind of big, it's, it's the capital migration, but certainly in that um, third party counterparty risk. The reduction of counterparty risk, just the awareness of the kind of inevitability of debasement. I think all of these things, that, that kind of soft capital flight, and uh, a lot of these things happen gradually, then suddenly. There's just a, a moment in time when people realize, all right, now I got to get out. I got to actually get some money out of this system. And I'm, I'm kind of keeping an eye on that level. Maybe that's part of this whole whale movement, but uh, that's, that's kind of the dynamic. It's this high net worth capital flow. They're not as flaky as retail. They're generally buying it for a reason. And uh, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to play out over the coming years. Are you watching Binance at all in terms of, I mean, there has been so much innuendo around them, even if they were the squeakiest, cleanest company in the world, which inevitably they're not, you know, uh, just by virtue of, of how fast they've moved. After FTX, everyone would still suspect them, but obviously that has started to reach a bit of a fever pitch with you know executives leaving and actions in the U.S. The constant swirling rumor of DOJ action. The flip side, and obviously they've had a lot of trouble in Australia as well. Do you think that there is is Binance a risk factor for the whole industry in the short term? You know, if something more dire or dramatic were to happen, or is it kind of like? People have figured out that they're a risk and it, it is what it is. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There's kind of two angles to this. There's the, let's go to the extremes. If, if there was truly an issue with Binance, in my view, it's going to be in the world of meat space. And what does that mean? That means it's going to be 
DOJ, it's going to be criminal charges, it's going to be blah, blah, blah. Unlike FTX. So just to paint a picture of the on-chain world, which you know, it, it's, it's nice to just kind of have some, some numbers around this. When we were profiling FTX, the biggest challenge that we had is that their balance management was just wacky. It would change every couple of weeks. They had these really bizarre peeling chains. All data providers had, had the same experience. It was really hard to track these guys. And it turns out it's because the coins just weren't there, right? Like the, you're looking for the, you're trying to find these wallets and it's because they were, it was fraud, right? They, they actually didn't have the wallets. Binance is the polar opposite. They got loads of coins. They like you can see them. And one thing that Binance does um, that they're, like they're very transparent. Their wallet management practices are quite trackable. And uh, you know, our, most of our wallets, when we kind of find new packets of information, almost all the time we've we've already seen them. Right, our clustering algorithms have picked them up. So to that extent, whilst there's no question that there's probably some areas that aren't exactly spotless. A lot of that, at least to my view, appears to be in the world of meat space. It's in the world of regulations. It's in. It's going to be a a legal challenge. It's not it, at the moment. It doesn't seem to see it's because they just don't have the coins, right? Now the challenge with that is that proof of reserves is a you've got the assets, but what's your liabilities? So that's kind of the the risk that's unknown. Is that off chain liability set? How does that match up with the coins? But if we look at Binance's Bitcoin supply, it's pretty much at all-time high, right? So they have a stack of Bitcoin. Whether they owe more than that Bitcoin, very, very hard to tell. Would it be catastrophic if they failed? Yeah, probably. And at least from my perspective, I think it'd be a real, they're a bit of a pirate ship, right? They're, They're kind of in that BitMEX and Tether school of thought where it's amazing what they've done and how they've survived as long as they have, given the regulatory environment they're in. But at the same time, say what you will about Binance, when you hear stories about how they've opened up finance in unbanked countries, right? You, you kind of hear about the the prevalence. I mean, yes, things may not be squeaky clean, but man, that's they're giving a service to people who need it. There's kind of a I don't know what the the argument is there, but it's uh, it would be a shame on that front. Whilst of course there's there's things that they probably should do better and differently. It would be a shame to reset that part of the clock. I'd hope that entrepreneurs can come in and kind of fill that gap a bit better in a bit of a cleaner format. But again. You know, they're operating a pirate ship and in a lot of places, that's the best service that's available. So like Tether. Absolutely. No, I, I think I think this is, uh, if you, you know, follow people like Alex Gladstein, this is something that they talk about a lot is just, you know, if you look at like the African continent, how much finance, you know, has just opened the space up, you know, to, to, to a huge new sets of people. No, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, it's, it is obviously the sort of, in some ways, it's the one biggest thing that could still be problematic. I guess, you know, a forced liquidation of GPTC as well. But interestingly, I think in some ways, people have had a better time, I think, pricing in DCG never being quite the powerhouse that it was before already. I think there's fewer unknowns there. Yeah. That's a big lesson I've learned from my time in markets. The market can deal with bad news if it knew about it. Markets don't like unknowns. If it's a known but bad news, it's actually generally a good thing. Yep. That's why I think that like the it was very clear for a while that Binance US was not going to be Binance US for for much longer. And that's the thing. It may just end up with a bifurcation where Binance services the non-Western world, right? They're pretty much shut down here in Australia. I think the UK is doing the same. And they just service the ex-Western world. That's That's a very feasible and likely scenario to my eye. Okay. Last thing. I really appreciate all your thoughts on everything. I'm going to hand you a soapbox for a minute. All day, you and others on on Twitter 
have been discussing 2019's favorite theme, Stock to Flow. What would you like to say for our dear listeners before before we head out about S2F? Please don't bring this back. It's just, a, it's <laughs> oh man, I thought we were done with this. Yeah, look, the challenge with the Stock to Flow model is essentially that it kind of lacks the rigor that's, that's I mean, look, at the end of the day, simplicity is what people desire. It's very memeable, right? Things that are simple. There's been a lot of statistical, very, very qualified statisticians and analysts who have looked at this thing, and it just doesn't live up to the level of scrutiny that it should, right? For the level of kind of attention that it gets, to be honest, really the problem with it is that it projects a future price. And the problem is that the vast majority of people, analysis is hard, right? If, if analysis was easy and surviving in markets was easy, we'd all be rich and we wouldn't have to do any of this, right? But the challenge is that it just doesn't work that way. Life is hard for a reason because otherwise it, it just doesn't work. So having this kind of model that can just project the, the, the 2050 price, and I mean, you look at how much it deviated. It's like, okay, but if, you've, if your bands are that this model is correct anywhere between 10 cents and $6 million, then there's something wrong with your model, right? You know, you're talking about orders of magnitude here. Now, the challenge that I have is that, you know, we develop models every single week. And of course, some are great, some are not so great, but they're all based in some kind of rigorous analysis, right? They're based on a psychological behavior pattern. They're kind of structured around things that help really describe the mechanics of what drives the market. So when you look at something like the stock to flow model, the challenge is it's basically relating price to a predetermined issuance. And if if you just think about that for a second, that's basically saying that we can hard code. It's central planning. You, you're hard coding in a human response in the future, and that's just it's literally promoting central planning, which you know it's kind of antithetical to what Bitcoin is all about. It is impossible to distill all the wonderful dynamics of a free market into a stock to flow ratio. And the other side is that there's there's no side of demand in this equation. It's basically looking at oh look, supply and scarcity equals someone buying it in the future. And the problem is that that leads to people making poor decisions because they believe that that's what the future holds. And what you're actually doing is misaligning people's expectations. So, you know, I've got many models that use, this is the thing, the the way that Plan B did his log-log regression, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we've done log-log regression on uh, on difficulty. And that's the model I was saying before about estimating the the kind of average price of Bitcoin. So there's nothing wrong with the methodology. The problem is that it's projecting out into the future. And if you look at difficulty, I don't know what difficulty is going to be in the future. I can tell you the average price to mine based on our best estimate. And the R squared is also like 98%. It's very, very strong correlation. But the problem is it doesn't give you the price at the end of the rainbow. And that's the thing that gets people confused. So I guess my big picture message is it hasn't really passed the statistical validity checks. It's been vehemently defended despite the fact that these things have been raised. And in many ways, there's a lot of credible analysts who are saying, guys, that we can we can and do have a lot better to, to offer that actually describes true market supply and demand. And you know, why are we using this kind of finger in the air? Maybe it's not really doesn't work, but now it works because we're up again. It's like we have models that really through this whole period of time, while stock to flow is deviating by 600%. We've got models that are actually telling you what's going on. So why are you looking at this thing still? Right? If we do, as an industry, have far superior models that tell you what's actually happening. I think that the predictive aspect of it creates a warped incentive where it tries to sort of map to itself versus you know every, everything that you guys do, to the extent that you have anticipation around what's next, 
it's usually because there's a back-looking pattern that, you know, has happened again, right? Like, the way that you guys come at things is trying to understand what the data is telling you about what's happening right now versus what's likely to happen in the future. Probabilities. Yeah. When you get into the realm of the future, you're still basing it on this set of of outcomes that that might be in some ways. You know, there's just, I think it's a, you're not looking for a thing that's going to tell you yes by now or what it's going to come. I mean, the thing that's interesting about S2F is that it's, it was always sort of a difficult combination of, on the one hand, a hopium fuel for people who sort of needed to anchor around something, and two, a meaningful thing for people who are trying to grok the importance of supply as part of this asset. But obviously in a, in a way that gets pretty warped. But anyways, I, I thought I wanted to give a, a moment to chat because uh, it has come storming back, at least temporarily. It has. And, and look, I, I do hope that uh, at the end of the day, if we go down this path of believing in this model again, we kind of deserve the winter that will follow. Because you know, th- at the end of the day, there's, there's a lot of critical thinking that's gone into just showing that it, it's one of those perfect examples of it's really easy to create a claim and it takes an order of magnitude more work to disprove it. We have that order of magnitude of work, but the claim just keeps popping up. And look, at the end of the day, the qualified analyst is going to stop caring. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to get to the point where people go, okay, whatever. If you want to follow it, go nuts. And maybe it becomes that kind of mimetic thing again, right? Everyone's looking at this target, and the problem is that everyone's waiting. It pains me when I see people comment saying, oh, you gave the 2024 price. Can you tell me what it is in 2028 and 2032? And it's like, oh, I mean, it, it, it just hurts because it's when it doesn't happen, you're not going to know why and because you haven't done that kind of gray matter thinking for yourself and it just misleads people and i think it's you know it's taking advantage of people who know no better and i think it's just it's just very unfortunate listen every new cycle we need to come up with some totally new bullshit right totally we can't be just resting on our laurels like if we're going to have a ridiculous model it needs to be based on something new so absolutely youtubers out there figure out what the next thing we're going to push is but at least make it different yeah yeah please give us some some diversity in this mix uh james awesome as always to have you on the show really appreciate you taking the time and uh excited to go through this long slog with you thanks mate what a pleasure cheers <laughs>